Well, the stories are all different, but there's a common thread that is woven into them. Uh, A sample would be uh, like this. Uh, Dear pastor, I've been married. We've been married for 26 years, but things have grown stale. My husband doesn't pay attention to me like he used to, and the kids are grown and they're gone. And uh, I bumped into an old boyfriend, and he's shown me a lot of attention. And uh, preacher, I know what you're going to say, but... God, doesn't God want me to be happy? Don't I deserve to be happy? A college student um, emails, Robert, I grew up in church and went to this church and it was good and I went to college and I wanted to be a, a good Christian and some of my Christian friends started compromising and getting into things and just partying hard and I would talk to them and try to persuade them and then over time I didn't want to miss out on things I too wanted to have fun I wanted to be free I wanted to enjoy this time I mean doesn't God want me to be happy don't I deserve to be happy pastor I met with one of your staff been living with my boyfriend and he's not treating me well and he's over promising and under delivering when it comes to a lifelong a commitment there's a lot of things going on but uh, you know your staff person she told me uh, to move out and to, to make things right before God but what kind of God is that and don't I deserve to be happy different stories but it plays out with a common thread this uh, lie stay with me this lie I deserve to be happy can uh, can wreak havoc on us 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 puts it this way. It says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. You can't afford to pretend that there's not a battle for your heart. And there is. For everybody in the room, one more time, you cannot pretend that there's not a battle for your heart. And this lie comes to us, it masquerades as truth. I mean, some of you are looking at me now with furrowed brow, like, come on, preacher, what kind of God are you going to try to deliver to us today? I mean, because I deserve to be happy. I'll meet you in the commons and we'll talk about this. But here's what I want to say to you today. There is this lie when it's distorted, when we don't understand it from God's perspective, that it could get the best of us and it could cause us to drift into, into dangerous waters. I was thinking about some people from Scripture who believed the lie, I deserve to be happy. Eve thought eating from the forbidden fruit would make her happy. Uh, Cain thought getting rid of his brother would make him happy. Esau thought eating the soup would make him happy. Noah thought getting drunk would make him happy. David thought sleeping with another man's wife would, would make him happy. Solomon thought 999 women would make me happy. I'll go for number uh, a thousand. Joseph's brothers thought getting rid of him or selling him into slavery would would make them happy. Jonah thought going to Nineveh would make him unhappy. Samson thought marrying a Philistine woman would make him happy. On and on and on, we see the rich young ruler thought holding on to all of his wealth would make him happy. Ananias and Sapphira thought holding back a portion of the money and lying about it would make them happy. Jason thinks that hiding in a world of anonymous pornography and hookup sites with hookup apps would make him happy. Sarah, she buys into the lie that 
She goes into debt to buy the new dining room set that that would make her happy. Crystal thinks I'll sleep with him because if I sleep with him, he'll love me. And if he loves me, that'll make me happy. Alan thinks embezzling funds when no one's looking can move us ahead. I deserve it and I deserve to be happy. So this lie, be careful of it, you and I cannot afford, we cannot pretend to think that there's not a battle for our hearts. And so I want to say today, don't let the enemy outwit you and think you deserve something in ways that you think you deserve it. And to live lie after lie after lie that this will make me happy. So this morning, this weekend, and this third installment of I've Got Issues, can I hear an amen? Because we got issues. Like I pastor a bunch of y'all, y'all got issues. She lives with me. I got issues. She'll tell you. Like We got issues. And we're looking at today, after we've looked at I'm anxious, last week I'm angry, and today we're going to look at uh, I'm not content. So I want us to, to uh, look at a contrast. I, wanna, I want us to contrast what we're calling cultural happiness with biblical happiness. And I'm going to give you several points under this. This will be the first, but the, the, the top is, is the contrast. Every other thing is a bullet point. Uh, contrasting left to right there, but cultural happiness, do you, do you deserve to be happy? Well, there's the pursuit of pleasure versus the pursuit of godliness. Now, even, hear me now, even secular studies bear this out. Uh, they have names for it, uh, the pleasure principle or the happiness illusion. Have you ever read about this? The pleasure principle AKA the happiness illusion is the, the, when you go for happiness, when you are working to be happy, it's, it's probably the surest way for you to be unhappy. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be happy in my way, on my terms. I establish the, the terms and conditions and I'm going to go for this and it's going to make me happy. And even secular studies show us that the happiness illusion, the pleasure principle um, leads us astray. Now, some people, some Christian folk think this way. Well, I'm not about happiness. It's really not about happiness. It's about being obedient. You ever heard that? Like, it's really not. I'm, I'm with you, preacher. I don't have any problem with where you're going today. I deserve to be, you know, I deserve not to be happy, but to be obedient. And the problem that I have with that is it pits two things against each other. You see, there's, there's the pursuit of godliness. But think about it. These two not being happy, like, y'all know anybody like that? I don't know if you're here, they're probably all at home this morning or coming to the 11 o'clock, but there's some Christians like that, they're like, I'm not gonna be happy, I'm just gonna be obedient. And they're on the path to I'm not happy. They're on the I'm not happy path, and listen, they're not happy, are they? You know any of them? I mean, they're not happy. I, I hang out with them, and they're committed, they're so committed to obedience that they're not happy. They're really committed to they're not happy. But consider the writers of Scripture. I don't want us to miss it this morning. We're going to end with a beautiful song I can't wait to get to called I Shall Not Want. And this song that we'll take communion over is is not exactly what you think when it says I shall not want. But in the psalmist, he says that in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Psalm 16. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 32 Serve him with gladness. Psalm 100, enter into his courts with thanksgiving and in, in, in with praise and enter his gates and his courts and serve him again with great joy and with great gladness. Ecclesiastes 9.1, I love this. Uh, drink your wine with a happy heart. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. 1 Thessalonians 5, always be rejoicing in every single circumstance. Jesus, John 15, I'm teaching you these things 
Not that you'll get the answer right on the theology quiz. I'm teaching you these, these things so that you would have joy and that your joy would be complete, that it would overflow and it would have no end. You see, there is um, not a contrast in God's eyes between obedience and happiness. You see, in my book, because it's in the book, happiness is obedience. But there is what Scripture calls, and I want to call your attention to 1 Timothy 6, if you want to grab a Bible or you brought a Bible today. If not, just look on the screen. But this is where we are. I'd love everyone to leave with this dominant thought today. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, our God is a happy God. Our God is for your happiness. Happiness and obedience are not separated. Happiness is obedience. But we must pursue what the scripture says over and over, what we see in people who bought into various lies, What lies might you be buying into today about your happiness? What shortcuts, what compromises? Where is the enemy outwitting you today? What schemes is he using against you or against the person sitting next to you that you love? Godliness, being like God. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Second contrast, under uh, contrasting cultural happiness with biblical happiness is that cultural happiness is based on circumstances, whereas biblical happiness is based on Christ. Circumstances is this, if only, if only. Think for a second about these two magical words. These two magical words that can grip us, that can have you in its way, if only if only I went to a different school if only I had a better body if only I had a bigger house if only this and have you noticed that we never really take the time like we're wanting that if only and then someone's in the different school or they got the better body or that's awkward they got the bigger house or whatever and then you never go to them and really ask them hey are you happier with the different school the better body the bigger house are you happy with what because like what you have is what I'm striving for but time and time again I I can tell you I'm just a little bit older than a lot of you but a lot older than some of you but like I can just tell you a lot of the people that get those things that have lived with that if only have they possess that if only and they're not content there's a discontentment there if only if only if only backing up a little bit kind of in a macro way uh, Gallup did a very uh, credible study And it contrasted people born before 1945 with people living today. And the people born before 1945 were 10 times less likely to suffer from depression. And I ask you today, does that seem odd? Because today, if we live with, if only, think about it, our circumstances have never been more comfortable. Our conveniences have never been more abundant. Never, ever. Every indicator says that we're going up as a society, but mental health and emotional health and people's well-being and therefore happiness and contentment is not. Self-image, suicide rates, self-harm, all these things that are so plaguing, so troubling, are going up. 
So if only our circuit, if, if I, I could only be more comfortable, if I could only avoid more pain, if I could only have more conveniences of my life, then I would be happy. But look what Jesus said. This is a call today to base your happiness on Christ and who he is. Look what he promised. And I love this because his head wasn't in the sand when it comes to hard times and suffering. He said this in John 16, 22, the disciples are knuckleheads. They're very stubborn. They were learning without learning. They were hearing him foretell what would happen and it didn't seem to be getting through the noggin. Anybody struggle? Anybody kind of slow to learn from your teacher, from the guru? And Jesus said this, so with you, now is your time of grief. He's about to die. They're about to come after him. Now is your time of grief. His head is not in the sand, but I will see you again and you will be very content. You will be happy. You will rejoice. And this is what I love. And no one will take away your joy. Suspend, suspend doubt for just a second. Don't even think about faith in God, just, just for a split second. Don't you want that? Wouldn't you want, I mean, even if, even if you're like, man, I came today because somebody invited me and I'm really not happy to be here and I'm just twiddling my thumbs, preacher, hurry up and get this thing, hurry up and land this plane. Even if you're there today, just for a second, just give me this. Wouldn't that be cool if you could have a joy that nobody would take away? Just nobody could touch it. Here's what William Barclay said, a Scottish scholar he said this about what paul said in philippians 4 paul said this he said um look at me for a second then look on the screen but he said in philippians 4 11 and 12 i've had i've had a lot and i've had little i've known abundance and i've known scarcity is that anybody's story today like i love to hear stories i didn't have a pot to you know and then i didn't have anything and then now look look where i am and i you know i didn't have much and i have much and and paul said i learned that's a key word i learned you got to go to school I learned to be content. I learned to be content when my stomach was full and I was fat and happy. I learned to be content when things were scarce. Now, William Barclay says this. Let's bring in a Scottish guy. Describes that, that Philippians 4, describes that joy which has its secret within itself. That joy which is, I love these descriptors, y'all. That joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. Leave it up for a moment, if you would, just to let that soak in. Serene and untouchable. MC Hammer saying, you can't touch this. And then all of his possessions, they pulled up trucks to his house in Oakland, and they touched everything that he owned. And we live that way. Oh, look, I'm going I'm to build this world, and, and you can't touch this. But your happiness way too often is touched. Way too often it gets repossessed, doesn't it? If it's built on the changing circumstances. But Jesus is promising us, now you can take it or leave it, but Jesus promises us a joy that Paul talked about. And some of us know, precious few of us do know this, but it's a joy that's untouchable. It's serene and it's not open. It's not swayed by the chances and changes of life. Have y'all noticed how much life changes? Have y'all noticed how much seems to be open for chance? But this, this joy that Jesus gives, 
He gives a very promise to his disciples. And, and we talked about, about this at Easter. Jesus made a lot of promises. I always go with the ones that we know to be true that doesn't even require any faith. Jesus said, this message, like I'm going to share it with a few people and then more people. And it's going to get so a hold of these people. They're going to see me die and be resurrected. And they're going to start this movement of love that's going to change the world. It's going to go to every corner of the earth. And it did. Some people have found a joy that can't be touched. And it's better than the ever-evolving, shifting sands of your circumstance. I was in Oxford yesterday. Isn't that good of me to be a pastor for all the people? And I was up there doing a wedding. Hey, you know, Oxford people said, come to Oxford, do a wedding. Beautiful little city there and a great time. And I stood there, uh, as I do often, so many weekends with a young couple. And man, the, Jordan and, and Carly, and they're, they're moving to Greensboro where they'll do their medical residency. And they're just so young, and, and they just don't know much about love right now. And I didn't tell them that in the ceremony, really. But, I mean, it was like I, I kind of leaned in. They were playing violins. It was a quaint chapel and, and really beautiful. And we talked about love and all that stuff. But they, they, they know a, some. They met on a dance floor when Soldier Boy was playing. And Jordan bumped into her. He said he did it by accident. But if Soldier Boy's playing and you bump into somebody five times, that's no accident. Right, ladies? Don't let them, don't be unaware of their schemes. But uh, Jordan... And Carly said, I do, but how much change is going to be in their life? Well, they're moving to South Carolina, but they don't know. They don't know medical residency and what's going to happen to them. And what's going to, what, I mean, there's just going to be a world. And so what they need to do if they listen to the bald-headed preacher there is to find out what doesn't change and just lock in on what is rock solid. Now you're agreeing, some of you are nodding your head about Jordan and Carly, but now what about you? Does that sound a good, like a good idea for them? But how about you? The third thing, as we contrast cultural happiness with biblical happiness is this. Uh, cultural happiness is fueled by comparison. Uh-oh. But biblical happiness is fueled by gratitude. If we could leave that up for a second. It, uh, do you compare yourself? Do you compare yourself with others? I don't have it on the screen, but Proverbs 14.30 for any note takers, it says this, that a heart at peace, that's contentment, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Eugene Peterson in the message says, but envy causes cancer. It gets into the bones. But oh, first part, a heart at peace. I'm not looking like I'm living my life. Anybody, anybody tempted to live somebody else's life? Do you, do you know, anybody guess that I live that I can live that way too? Do y'all know I'm tempted like you're tempted and there's nothing special about me and every day I can hear these things, not just about me, but as a pastor about our church and we're not blank enough, you're not blank enough, you're not doing this blank enough and it's so easy to look around and try to be another pastor and try to be another church and try to be another man, another leader and, and envy can really take hold and the very tools that allow us to communicate things Social media is the very tool that produces in us this envy that causes cancer and rots the bones. Oh, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. What side of that are you on mostly right now? Ecclesiastes 4.4 put it this way. I love this. Uh, he was talking about the motives. This is a guy, remember, that had it all. And all didn't satisfy. He wasn't content. Ecclesiastes 4.4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one, of, one person's envy of another. And this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. How much of your motivation is based on others? 
You remember Jesus would teach, if you have food and you have clothing, be content. And most of us in this room anyway have food and clothing. But how many of us are content? Because we look and we compare. We compare what we have in light of what someone else has. What we don't have because of what someone else has. ESPN, their Instagram account had something not too long ago entitled a split image. Anybody see this? Make note of this. I would love for all of you to look at this later, particularly young women. On Instagram, Madison Holleran's life looked ideal. She was a star athlete, a bright student, beloved friend. But the photos on Instagram, that is, hid the reality of someone struggling to go on. She was everything in her high school. And everybody thought she was happy. And she went to Penn, University of Pennsylvania, another whole other level academically. And she was a whole other level athletically. And she went and she studied. And, and her freshman year was outwardly seemed successful, but inwardly was a hell. And she, she took a depression medication. She saw a therapist regularly, but she fought a battle. And it's portrayed in this interview, a split image on ESPN. Check it out. I'm giving commercials up here. I get financial kickback. But for real, this world that she was living in and all of her friends on ESPN, all of her friends were saying she seemed so happy. She seemed so happy. And just a couple of them were getting, they got a little peek into her life, just a little peek into Madison's heart of where she was struggling and the pressure to compete. And the higher that you get on the rung, I think y'all know this. Uh, I might have dropped this in a sermon before, but you know the highest rates of suicide and self-harm and depression and all are in Ivy League schools. So Ole Miss and State and stuff, maybe not that bad, right? But the higher we achieve, the more that stuff can get us. So instead of being fueled by comparison, and I ask you today, can you break that? Can you break that? Is it possible to loosen the chains? Is that a work, an inward work that God can do where the chains of comparison can be loosened in your life? It's happening in me to some degree. And then I, you know, I go back and I shift a little bit, but it's a, it's a part of growth in my life. Be who you are. Lead Fondren Church with other leaders and be humble and be kind and lead this church. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't compare and don't envy. Don't let it rot your bones. But by contrast, instead of being fueled by comparison, which is cultural happiness, how about being fueled by gratitude? In 1 Thessalonians 5, I hinted at part of this passage earlier, but it says to rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. And if something's hard, it's easy to recoil at all of that, but especially the last one. And I love what some people have pointed out to me and I pointed out to you today. I've probably done this before, but rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Doesn't mean that you're thankful for everything in your life, but it means no matter what's happening. Remember Jesus in John 16, 22, again, in your grief, right now you got grief, but I want you to rejoice. And let me tell you about a joy that you don't know that joy yet, but you're about to know a joy and nobody's gonna be able to take it away from you. Now, you know, when Jesus said that, you know what was gonna be taken from them? (laughs) Their life. Their, their life would be taken from them. But no one's going to beat, no one's going to take that joy. Psalm 16 again, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, heaven one day, their pleasures forevermore. No one can take that joy, but to be fueled by gratitude. A North Carolina state 
um, study, they had an experiment where they got people to do journals, and one group did a, a gratitude journal. Anybody ever done that? You know, count your blessings, name them one by one. We've, we've heard that. I just don't know that we do that, and we may think it's kind of cheesy, but uh, one group, they did the gratitude journal, and the other group did the annoying journal, like you annoy me. And they just wrote down, the, the gratitude people wrote down what they were thankful for. That on the daily, they wrote down those things. They kept them in the journal, and then they grouped up and talked about them. And these folks, over a period of weeks, they just wrote down what annoyed them about other people and about life itself. And they grouped up and talked about it and everything. And the results, it was remarkably, remarkably different the results. The people who kept the gratitude journals had more energy and more enthusiasm. They had less depression. They slept better at night. They had greater sense of community and well-being. Markedly different, says North Carolina State. And think about that. If you're just writing down the things that annoy you, pick a person, uh, not the person you're sitting next to if you're here with somebody and certainly married to them or in relationship with them, deep relationship, but uh, pick somebody else that you know outside of this room and think about that. What would that do for your relationship with that person? If I did that with Susan, if one day I just wrote it all, one week or multiple weeks, I just wrote down all I was grateful for and I talked with her about it and I talked with other people about it, what would that do with me and Susan? But if I took some time and uh, I'm doing what I ask you not to do, but if, if I took some time and just wrote down all that annoys me about Susan or if she did that with me or let's get back to you, if you did that to that somebody, what would that do in your relationship? You're looking for what annoys you. You're going to find it, aren't you? If you're looking, you're going to find it. And here's what I'm saying. What, what maybe you've done in your mind or what I pretended to do with Susan now, like if you do that, not with that person, but with life, you're either going to be grateful for life or you're going to be annoyed by it. So cultural happiness is be fueled by comparison. Be fueled by comparison. Look around and see how you're doing and try to do better than people around you. That stuff is built into us, and in America, uh, it's really built into us. And by the way, uh, one study I, I was reading about this week said that America's uh, 37th on the list of happiest nations. 37th. That seems to belie where we are economically and other things that we have, democracy and freedom and stuff. Only number 37. That's awfully low, if you ask me. Another idea behind the, the contrast between cultural happiness and biblical happiness is cultural happiness says focus on yourself and biblical happiness says focus on others. Writers are talking more and more in 2021 about the exaltation of the individual, which is, everybody wants to kind of protect that, right? Because you're like, hey, preacher, preach and make me feel good. I want to leave here in just a few minutes and I want to feel good. I want an entertaining sermon. I want you to lift me up, give me some inspiration and send me on my way. And then when I leave those doors, I want to feel good. And I'll let you know if I'm coming back, or if I'm going to invest at all, but I'm the individual and I'm sovereign. I'm the captain of my ship, the master of my own faith to steal some poetic uh, words there. The individual is being exalted like never before. I was reading this a few weeks ago that we used to ask institutions to form us, and now we ask our institutions to affirm us. And there's the exaltation of the individual. Some of you may remember, I got in a little bit of hot water for it, but I did a three-week political series back in October, smack dab in the middle of the election cycle right before the November election. I didn't tell you who to vote for. I didn't tell you who I was voting for. I got in trouble for that. But I, the the premise of the whole sermon the series was how to talk about politics without being obnoxious 
And in that series, I mentioned to you that there's three institutions that God has ordained. Do y'all remember? The family, the church, and government. The family, the church, and the government. But when the individual gets exalted so high, all those institutions suffer greatly. Remember uh, Kennedy said famously, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. I didn't need help from the worship guys on the front row. Come on. They see me struggling up here and they just feel, they finish my sentences. I'm, I'm, I'm going to sing some songs then. Um, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And Kennedy tapped on something. We, we all remember it. I almost didn't, but we all remember that, right? Everybody just nod your head if you're still awake. You remember he said that and it was like so stirring. Like, yeah, how can we be a great nation if everybody's going, hey, give me my stuff, give me my stuff, give me my stuff. What are you going to do for me? Hey, United States, what are you going to do for me? To be a strong nation, no matter what nation it is, you need individuals to come together and say, what can we give? What can we sacrifice? And so it is in the family and so it is in the church. We won't grow strong if we're a random, loose confederation of individuals who are exalting themselves. And your family, what if you live that way? I have a lot of men friends, and they want to be unaccountable. They want to do their thing. Well, I, I provide a living for my family so I can do what I want to do. And that's not the way to love. Remember Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Knock down your individualism battle that ego and that will and sacrifice for the good of your family what sacrifices do you make for your church what sacrifice do you make for your family what sacrifices do you make in this great land the united states of america that you live in we exalt the individual um, but to focus not on ourselves but to focus on other people to focus on others i think of my man moses Hebrews 11, you know, the hall of faith that's recounting the women and the men who served. And some of them, man, they, they, it ended so well. And some of them were cut in two and sawed in half and burned at the stake and given to the dogs in the Colosseum. But it says this in Hebrews 11, 24 to 26 about my man, Moses. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember the basket? Remember the river? Remember the shaky start? He wasn't a victim, y'all. He was an overcomer. And it says this, he chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ to, than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was a focus not on himself, but on other people. And time and time again, I can tell you, if you keep it here and make it about you, that's the surest way to be unhappy. But when you look at others and say, hey, I'm going to follow God amidst the challenge. I'm going to count the cost and make it about other people. Lo and behold, paradoxically, strangely, eventually, there's a joy that can't match, that's unmatched with any other joy. So, a couple of things I want to throw in real quick here about it so we can have a complete list because I wrote this and I just wanted to get it out there. Um, let's do this first. Can you say this today? Can you say I'm grateful for what I have? I'm satisfied with what I earn and I'm generous to those in need. That last one, are you thinking about others? You know, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What is godliness? It's being like God. Who is God? He's generous. He's a lot, but he's generous. 
he gives to other people. A few more things here in our, our list of contrast. Um, the last two I just added, the cultural happiness is a foundation of feelings, but biblical happiness is a foundation of faith. I want to be careful when I say this, but we overdo the therapeutic model. Like a lot of people, they'll, and I love this, don't stop, but people will say, hey, Robert, how you doing? I mean, no, no, how you really doing? And it's like, no, no, I mean, you said good, you said fine, you said busy, but like, how are you really doing? And it, like they're wanting a moment like with, you know, like Matt Damon with Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting where I just start crying and just they hold me and I tell them how I'm really doing. And uh, now sometimes that happens. I'm not past that. Uh, I usually go to my two pastors who are my best friends. They live out of state. I tell them all my junk. And sometimes I break down like they break down. Y'all, y'all need that. Everybody needs that. But sometimes we can overplay this. Like, how you doing? How you feeling? How do you feel happy? Are you happy? You happy? You feel happy? How you feeling? How you feel about this? How you feel about that? And when we overplay it, we make it about us and we make it about those feelings. But the strongest folks are the folks who say, the folks who are better, the, the folks who are flourishing and bringing life to others are the folks who can sometimes just walk by faith. Let me rephrase that. All the time can walk by faith and say, hey, it's not about how I'm feeling or I can push through these feelings. Remember Jesus in John 16? Right now you're knowing grief. They were feeling sad but there would be a joy and joy is on the other side. Somebody's really hurting today, joy's on the other side. Joy's on the other side. Push through those feelings and live by a foundation of faith, found by chasing it or found by receiving it. I deserve to be happy. The gospel says something different. I'm trying not to get in trouble here because I want you to come back. But the gospel says we deserve eternal separation. The gospel says that we, there's a very holy God. It don't matter how bad you are. And a lot of times we compare our badness with other people's badness. And we pick people that are really bad. So we feel good about our badness. But God is a holy God. And what we deserve is eternal separation. But Jesus has bridged the gap. And you know what? So we ought to be happy. Like we ought to be happy because we have Jesus. Real quickly, what contentment is not, because there's some men in the room. I want you men especially to respect me, all people, but I want you men to respect me. Here's what contentment is not. Contentment is not complacency, it's not apathy, and it's not settling for where you are. Can I say that one more time? Here's what contentment is not. It's not complacency, it's not apathy, and it's not settling for where you are. Real quick, let me show you, let me show you uh, Philippians here, two, two examples, and we'll get quickly back to First Timothy as we close. But in Philippians chapter 4, you know, Paul said this, I referenced it earlier. I am not saying this because I am in need, which is hilarious because he's in jail. For I have learned to be content with whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. So I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He's in the rocking chair in jail and he's going, I'm content. That's, that's a passage of contentment. Are you, are you grateful for what you have, satisfied with what you earn? Are you generous to those in need? Are you content? Like, be in the rocking chair. But look what he said right before that in Philippians 3. He's not schizophrenic. He's just, don't, don't misunderstand what contentment is. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for, whom, uh, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here we go. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Now, here we go. Yet to know the power power is resurrection the participation is suffering becoming like him in death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead does that sound like a man that's just going to sit in the rocket chair 
Like I want to know, I want to give myself. So it's not, com- it's not complacency, apathy, or staying where you are. In 1 Timothy 6, we read, well, godliness with contentment is great gain. Real quick, I'm going to roll through these. For we brought nothing into the world. We can take anything out of the world. We cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, there's Jesus again from Matthew 6. With these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, careful how you read this, is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And so here is contentment, contentment, contentment. And be careful if you're going after stuff and basing it on circumstances and it's fueled by comparison. Be very careful. It will lead you astray. But here is someone saying, um, while being content, don't be complacent, apathetic, or stay there. He says this in 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you had made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's saying flee, pursue, fight, take hold. None of those are rocking chair verses. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. live a life in Christ where you can say I'm grateful for what I have I'm satisfied with what I earn and I'm generous to those in need but fight and flee and pursue and take hold don't be complacent here's what here's what we can't be content with we can't be content with the world the way it is There's suffering and sickness and incredible sadness. And we are called, Amos 5, to let justice roll like the river, Micah 6 eight, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Don't settle for the world the way it is. Bring heaven to earth in the way that you can. And here's another thing. You can't settle and be content with the way you are. You need to flee. You need to pursue. You need to fight. You need to lay hold. But to be in a place where you say, Jesus is with me here. And for now, it is enough. There was a poem. I'm going to try to do it here as we close, as the team begins to work their way up. But there's a poem written many years ago. It goes like this. It was spring, but it was summer. I wanted the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted the colorful leaves in the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter. I wanted the beautiful snow and the rejoicing of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring. I wanted the blooming and blossoming of nature. I was a child, but I wanted to be a man, the freedom and respect. Um, I was in my 20s, and I wanted to be in my 30s, the sophistication and the maturity. I was middle-aged, and I wanted to be in my 20s, uh, the youth and free spirit. I was retired, and I wanted to go back to middle age, where I would have the presence of mind without the physical limitations. I lived my life, and I never got what I wanted. That was written in the 60s by a 14-year-old boy. Wouldn't you, wanna, wouldn't you hate to be that where you live your life and you never got what you wanted? I would ask you today to rethink the lie, to be aware of the enemy's schemes, and to realize that happiness is obedience. It's not pitting the two against each other, but they go together. But define happiness the way that God does and walk with him.
Let him speak to you. Let him minister to you into the deepest places. We're going to take communion now over a song called I Shall Not Want. I'm so excited to sing this song. I'm so excited that we have our New York violinist and all this team. And this is a beautiful song. And I mentioned this earlier, the phrase I shall not want. We don't talk like that, but a lot of you know the Lord is my shepherd. It's not a stoic. It's not a ramp down your desires and lower your expectations. It's not that. It's not stoicism. It's I have what I need. I have Jesus. And he's loved me. He loves me and he's forgiven me of my sins. Therefore, a heart will be at peace and it will give life to my body. Even in the midst of some grief now that you're experiencing, there will be joy on the other side. And Jesus has provided that for us. This cup says that we've been forgiven. This wafer represents the body of Jesus broken for us. And this cup, this juice represents his blood shed for us. And Jesus said, he gave us this command and billions do it today. Do this in remembrance of me. So would you stand church and before we sing this great song, I shall not want, would you would you take this wafer Jesus said do this in remembrance of me. As an act of worship we do this now. His blood shed for you. Let's sing before we go.